Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. This is Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show, committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I am Bring It On contributor, Eric Love. Katanji Brown Jackson is an American attorney and jurist who has served as a federal judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit since 2021. She is a current nominee for the Supreme Court awaiting confirmation in the Senate. And since Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement, President Biden has conducted a rigorous process to identify his replacement. President Biden sought a candidate with exceptional credentials, unimpeachable character, and unwavering dedication to the rule of law. And the president sought an individual who is committed to equal justice under the law and who understands the profound impact that the Supreme Court's decisions have on the lives of the American people. That is why the president nominated Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to serve as the next justice on the Supreme Court. Judge, Jackson, Judge Brown Jackson is one of our nation's brightest legal minds and has an unusual breadth of experience in our legal system, giving her the perspective to be an exceptional justice. And this week, uh, Judge Brown Jackson has been going through Senate hearings and on her way, hopefully, to confirmation. However, it was Jackson's approach as a judge to sentencing that we heard about most in her confirmation hearing, since Republicans' most frequent line of attack had to do with her rulings on child pornography cases. Republicans seized on those rulings to accuse her of being too lenient and to paint her as soft on crime. This hour, we'll explore this along with those characteristics that make her a stellar candidate for the nation's highest court. To help us, we have secured two local stellar jurists, the Honorable Valerie Houghton, Circuit Court Judge, Division Two, and the Honorable Jeffrey Bradley, Monroe County Circuit Court Division One. Your honors, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you for Great having us. Here. Yeah. And we are so privileged to have you both on and uh, Wow, there's a lot of ground to cover, and 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 let's sort of just jump right in. One of the things that has really got my ire is the way the questioning has uh, gone around that area of child pornography, trying to take what has to be a small percentage of all the cases that she's ever tried, uh, and try to magnify that to be uh, the end all there, and you know, end all be all. And we know that there's political gamesmanship going on, but at some point rational minds have to prevail. And for our listeners who may not have heard several of these exchanges, we've taken one and we wanna play it at this time just to give you sort of a sense of, uh, I'd just say the, the craziness that's going on. So this is about five minutes. Um, so just bear with us as we go through this. Let me ask you about the Hawkins case. You and I talked about this yesterday. You've been able to think about it overnight. This is a case where you had an 18 year old who possessed and distributed hundreds of images of eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds, and you gave him, frankly, a slap on the wrist sentence of three months. Senator, Do you I regret it? I don't remember whether it was um, 
distribution or possession in it the was law. Both. Do you regret it? In in the law, there are different uh, crimes that people commit. Judge, in you this gave him three months. My question is, do you regret it or not, Senator? What I regret is that in a hearing about my qualifications to be a justice on the Supreme Court, we've spent a lot of time focusing on this small subset of my sentences, and I've tried to explain You regret that we're focusing time. on your cases? I don't understand. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that you're talking about Child seven cases? very serious cases. I'm glad we agree on that. Don't you some, think some, some of which Some of which involve conduct that I sentence people to 25, 30 years. Three months before. in this case, Judge. Do you regret it? You haven't answered my question yet. Senator, Do you regret the sentence? Senator, I would have to look at the circumstances what I'm telling you. You you know the circumstances. We discussed it for half an hour yesterday. There's a 55-page transcript, which I'm sure you've read. You I lived it. Not, As you've not. emphasized to this committee over and over, you've lived it, right? You said that you've been through all of this. You've looked at all of the images. You're the one who's had to endure all of it. You gave him a three-month sentence. I just wonder if you regret it or if you stand by it. I mean, do you stand by that sentence? Senator, in every case, I followed what Congress authorized me to do in looking to the best of my ability at all of the various factors that apply, that constrain judges, that give us discretion, but also tell us how to sentence. And I ruled in every case based on all of the relevant factors. So you don't regret it? No one case, Senator, can stand in for a I'm not asking that. I'm record. asking if you regret this sentence in this case. And it sounds like the answer is no. Senator, two observations. One, I am sentencing in every case. I have policy disagreements with certain aspects of the operation of the guidelines that I lay out in every case as Congress has required and as the Supreme Court permits in light of my experience, not only as a district judge, but also on the Sentencing Commission, which did a report about the operation of the guidelines. Second, you've read extensively from the government's argument in this case. You've not provided information from the probation office or the defense. And I, when I a don't judge, have the probation office report. No, excuse me, Senator. The probation office provides a, a recommendation. There has been information gathered about what a recommendation was given in each one of these cases. I don't have that information here, but what I'm saying is that in every case, the judge is not just hearing from the government. The, the, the judge is not just evaluating what the government says in these cases. In every criminal case, a judge has to take into account all sorts of factors, including arguments being made by the defendant by the government, by the probation office. So I understand that in certain cases, the government may have made an argument, but there are other people in our criminal justice system who make arguments, and the court evaluates everything as Congress has directed, and no one case can stand in for my entire record of how I deal with criminal cases or did when I was a district judge. I have law enforcement in my family. I am a mother who has 
daughters who took these cases home with me at night because they are so graphic in terms of the kinds of images that you are describing. They give you not only the actual videos, which you can ask to see, but they describe in the briefs, in detail, what these videos show. So I am fully aware of the seriousness of this offense and also my obligation to take into account all of the various aspects of the crime as Congress has required me to do, and I made a determination seriously in each case. Wow. Observations, um, Judge Bradley. Thank you. It's a, one of the things, and I want to pivot back for a moment, I think it'll be helpful when we we're talking about um, any of the, the portions are of the judiciary's involvement is for the listeners, hopefully for some information in history so that everyone can kind of contextualize what the judge is talking about and what she's uh, wanting everybody to understand. And, you know, we know a lot of folks have been watching the Judiciary Committee work this, this week. And the thing we want to look at really is going backwards a bit. And I know it's putting the, um, the horse after the barn after the, I've already left the barn, uh, messing with the door here, but I, I think it's really important for everybody to watch and look at um, the rules of ethics, the federal and uh, probably for us state rule of ethics. Um, she did a confirmation in 2012 and 2021 or probably online on C-SPAN and, and the like. And there are two important um, documents that I, and I know I've read through them. Um, one is her, her public um, questionnaire for her nomination, but the second is the American Bar Association's Committee on the Judiciary of the United States Senate. Uh, I'll tell you how those all tie into what she was talking about is, um, I know we see clips of people asking her questions, but really, if you want to look at these nominees, is to understand the breadth of their work, their stellar qualifications and the type of people they are, these are exceptional resources to look at. And the reason I talked about the American Bar Association is since 1953, they evaluate and give assessments of candidates. And the thing that they pointed out in, in their review of the judge is that they looked at her 578 opinions, dispositive orders, and other orders of effective injunctive relief. They went through all of her writings. They have a um, multi-person committee who reviews everything she's written and they're making some qualification determinations uh, and the, what they came out with on the judge is that um, she rated the highest um, possible that the American Bar Association could give us and it's a non they have no interest in um, the nomination process other than what they want to see the qualifications of a, of a strong and stellar jurist. And so they gave her the highest ranking and the American Bar Association spends their time looking to see if you have the professional competence, the integrity, the temperament for the seat. And I think when we're, when we're talking about this particular clip, I think what she wants to get every back, everybody to look at and everybody who's really listening to this show right now is to look at all of this information uh, because we... Unfortunately, because of time, because of how things are um, limited, 
she's not able to really go page by page in all of this. And like I said, you look through her questionnaire, it's 150 pages and it has citations to all of her opinions, all of her cases that she's been involved in. And, um, you know, we could probably talk about this a little bit more because um, I, I think it's, it's exceptional. The, the ABA and some online, it's about a 24 page report and they explain to you who they talked to about her, what they reviewed and what they, what, what they relied upon. And so, you know, in this particular exchange, we're talking about one particular um, case that she handled in the district court level in the sentencing stage, which is important. And it's, it's always something for people to learn about. But I think it, it's one of those aspects where we want to really pull back and look at everything. And I really think a great starting point is this ABA. Um, it just came out today. Um, it was day to day, their report was today. And they, look at all nominees. They did one for her when she was for um, her other positions with the federal government. And it really gives you a great understanding as to how in depth they've looked into her. The same as with the, um, the White House and the Senate Judiciary Committee, they have the FBI, they have other folks looking at her background and what she's done. Um, but you know, we're not getting to see, and I think all these reports talk about is, and she talked about, what did the probation office talk about? What was in the, um, essentially the pre-sentence um, work and what was in, uh, what was presented in the hearing. And that's a challenge for all of us watching because we have no idea what that case was about. I mean, we know what the topic is and we know generally some details, but we really don't know what happened and what was going on and, and what were all the circumstances. And um, I know Judge Houghton can talk more about it with criminal sentencing because she handles that world is yeah. the, the type of things that, that she sees and deals with. And I think Judge our, our nominee is one of those to let us know that um, each case is unique and each case has um, different aspects about it that um, you really need to bear into. And probably in that 30 yeah. minute exchange is not gonna allow it. Yeah, um, so clear, I, if I could just jump in, clearly the, the Senator wanted to um, sort of prove a point or- um, Create a point. Yeah, you know, <laughs> kind of create, create a point and, uh, and add a, a flair of, of drama to it without, and knowing that there, it's a much more complex um, situation than him just saying, do you regret this case? You know, uh, I, I do have a question um, and, and either, either judge might have the information on this. So um, this uh, bar association or this group you just mentioned said that she is the most qualified do you recall what they said about Judge They Barrett? didn't say she is the most qualified. Oh, they said right. she is highly qualified, which is the highest ranking that gotcha. the American Bar Association can give. Okay, sure. thank you for clarifying that. Do you remember what they said about Kavanaugh or Barrett? It's I in there, and I don't remember. And they have, um, they utilize three possible rankings, um, well-qualified, um, qualified, and a not qualified. And then you go through and you have their, re their report um, that they've compiled. Um, and I know that there's some other sources that they're all available online to reach for each of the nominees. I just, honestly, I don't recall. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, and I, and I do know that they gave uh, Judge Jackson what you would consider an A plus in terms of her qualifications. Okay. Um, if, if I could jump in though, with regard to, our reactions to the clip that, that you played. I, I will say that I 
I think I especially relate to it because in Monroe County, I handle, I think 95% of the sex abuse cases that come through the county. So I could relate really strongly to what she was being asked and how she was answering it. And as Judge Bradley said, um, she was trying to emphasize that you can't look at just one small percentage of her rulings and that because she has to look at each case on an individual basis, I have to do that all the time. And sometimes there are factors that she has to consider um, when she's making a decision and a ruling that aren't readily apparent. I mean, people's knee-jerk reactions, I believe, are you hear child porn and everybody kind of rightly so understands how serious an offense that can be, but without perhaps understanding that there be may, may be some mitigating circumstances. And I think that one of the things that Judge Jackson faced when she was going through the, I think all total 25 plus hours of interviews um, that she underwent for the past two days was that she was there to answer questions about her qualifications, about the things that made her a good nominee, uh, highly qualified nominee mm -hmm. to be, to sit on the highest, you know, the highest bench in, in you know, in, in the country. And for anyone to focus solely on what is probably less than 1% of, of her rulings gives a very skewed view of what she does and what she has done. And I will also state, I think without violating anything, that part of the objections that were voiced were that her record has not changed since she was confirmed for the um, District Court of Appeals in 2021. None of the records that they cited have changed. Everything was available at the time that they that she was confirmed, and none of these questions were posed. None of the challenges were posed. So I, I think that that shift was yeah. notable. And she was confirmed with bipartisan support previously. Yes, she was. Well, well, not only that, but one of those that did vote for her confirmation. And this has been his pattern ever since he was, you know, Trump's lap person, whatever, um, has come back repeatedly to just reverse the things he said just as short as two, three weeks ago. And Lindsey Graham, to me, um, that's just his pattern. He, to me, he's showing that he has no convictions. And, um, and then, you know, I think back to, we haven't talked about it. I don't think we need to go down that rabbit hole necessarily, but Clarence Thomas. And you understand, his, Mr. Boone, that we cannot, Judge Bradley and I are not absolutely. able to make certain yeah. statements that you might yeah. be able to. But, but see, but, but that's why Eric is here with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I, recall, I recall Clarence Thomas's uh, confirmation and, you know, it made for some interesting theater for a couple of weeks. Um, even to this day, Anita Hill um, is, she's got opinions on that. 
and she has just taken the high road. But um, and and you look at all this, and and I'm just I'm really I know it's partisan as far as how the Senate approaches this, but when you go from partisan to just ridiculous, yeah, that's another thing too. Yeah, but so Eric, you have a point. Go ahead. Yeah, couple couple of points. Uh, one, uh, I've in looking at um, Judge Brown Jackson's um, experience against her, the other colleagues that she would have on the Supreme Court, um, most of them did serve on the Court of Appeals as a judge. Only two, including Judge Jackson, was a district judge. Only two, including Jackson, was a was on the Sentencing Commission. Only one, that would be Judge Jackson Brown, is a has been a public defender, which gives her that extra experience and perspective that we've been missing all this time on the Supreme Court. Um, several of them have been Supreme Court clerks. Um, she went to a public high school, but an Ivy League um, higher education, uh, like many of, of the others. But she just has a breadth of experience that um, the others don't have. And one more thing I have to point out, even as horrendous as some of the questioning and how rude they were, she still had the temperament of a judge, the way yes. a judge would be. If you remember, Kavanaugh got all red-faced and angry and was pounding his fist. That should have disqualified him, in my opinion, from being a Supreme Court judge there. He doesn't have the temperance. He doesn't have you know, the, um, the ability to be an impartial judge. He's got angry over questionings, and his questions were not as... Um, volatile, I would say, as, as the attacks or questionings on, um, on Judge Brown Jackson. On, on that point, um, it was refreshing to see someone who has really you know, taken upon himself to be an advocate for her. And I'm talking about Senator Cory Booker, who, who just gave a, a marvelous defense of her character, integrity, uh, and, and was sort of comforting and coaching her in the moment and sharing with her the realities of the Senate in which he has had to deal with a lot of buffoonery. Um, we have gotten that clip and, and some of you may have seen snippets, but this is a nine minute clip and in the interest of time, I'm, I wanna play that now uh, and then come back after we get through listening to get some observations, but the voice you're going to hear is Senator Cory Booker as he is talking now with um, uh, the nominee. Yep, the volume is off on, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I live on. And I get terrified and I, I start getting full of emotion. I'm jogging this morning and I'm at the end of the block I live on. And I get terrified because I put my music on loud when I'm jogging, <laughs> trying to block out the noise of the, of the heart attack I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> and this woman comes up on me, practically tackles me, an African-American woman. And the look on her eyes, she just wanted to touch me because I think, because I'm sitting so close to you <laughs> and tell me what it meant to her to watch you sitting where you're sitting. And you did not get there because of some left-wing agenda. 
You didn't get here because of some dark money groups. You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done by being <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm just sitting here saying, nobody's stealing my joy. Nobody's gonna make me angry, especially not people that are called in a conservative magazine demagogic for what they're bringing up that just doesn't hold water. I'm not gonna let my joy be stolen because I know you and I, we appreciate something that we get that a lot of my colleagues don't. I know Tim Scott does. When I first came to this place, I was the fourth black person ever popularly elected to the United States Senate. And I still remember a lot of mixed people, white folks, black folks work here, but at night when people are in line to come in to clean this place, the, the, the percentage of minorities shift a lot. And so I'm walking here, first week I'm here, and somebody who's been here for decades doing the urgent work of the Senate, but it's the unglamorous work that goes on no matter who's in offices, the guy comes up to me, all he wants to say, I can tell is, I'm so happy you're here, but he comes up and he can't get the words out. And this man, my elder starts crying. And I, I just hugged him and he just kept telling me, it is so good to see you here. It's so good to see you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I, I love my brother, Tim Scott. We could write a dissertation on our disagreements. He gave the best speech on race. I wish I could have given as good of a speech, but talking to the challenges and indignities that are still faced and you're here. I was in the White House with my Democratic colleagues and I'm, again, I'm in my joy, I can't help it. <laughs> and, and, and the president's asking our advice, who should we nominate and whatever. And I look at Kamala and we have a knowing glance, which we've had for years, when she and I used to sit on this end of this committee at times. And then I try to get out to the president what it means, what it means. And I wanna tell you when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're an intellect, you love books. But for me, I'm sorry, I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my, my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had, to be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's gonna steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's gonna steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Your hero is Constance Baker Motley. Mine, she has sat on my desk for my offices that I've held. She's my icon of America. Her name is Harriet Tubman. There is a love in this country that is extraordinary. You admitted it about your parents. They loved this nation, even though there were laws preventing them from getting together. When they were loving, there were laws in this country that would have prevented you from marrying your husband. It wasn't that long ago, it was last generation. But they didn't stop loving this country, even though this country didn't love them back. And what were the words of your heroes and mine? What did Constance Baker Motley do? Did she, this country that she saw insults and injuries, when she came out of law school, law firms wouldn't even hire her because she was a woman. Did she become bitter? Did she try to create a revolution? No, she used the very constitution of this nation. She loved it so much, she wanted America to be America. As Langston Hughes wrote, oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, but yet must be the land where everyone is free. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be.
That is the story of how you got to this desk, you and I and everyone here, generations of folk who came here and said, America, I'm Irish. You may say, no, Irish or dogs need to apply, but I'm going to show this country that I can be free here. I can make this country love me as much as I love it. Chinese Americans first forced into near slave labor, building our railroads, connecting our country, saw the ugliest of America, but they were going to build their home here and say, America, you may not love me yet, but I'm going to make this nation live up to its promise and hope. LGBTQ Americans from Stonewall, women to Seneca, hidden figures who didn't even get their play until some Hollywood movie finally talked about them and how they were critical for us defying gravity. All of these people loved America. And so you faced insults here that were shocking to me. Well, actually not shocking, but you are here because of that kind of love. And nobody's taken this away from me. So you got five more folk to go through, <laughs> five more of us. And then you can sit back and let us have all the debates. And I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna be a well-charted Senate floor because it's not gonna stop. They're gonna accuse you of this and that. Heck, in honor of your person who shares your birthday, you might be called a communist. But don't worry, my sister, don't worry. God has got you. And how do I know that? Because you're here. And I know what it's taken for you to sit in that seat. Harriet Tubman is one of my heroes because the more I read about this person, the more, I mean, she was viciously beaten. Her whole life, she used to fall into spells, cracked skull. She faced starvation, chased by dogs. And when she got to freedom, what did she do? Did she rest? No, she went back again and again and again. The, star was, the sky was full of stars, but she found one that was a harbinger of hope for better days, not just for her and those people that were enslaved, but a a harbinger of hope for this country. And she never gave up on America. She fought in the, led troops in the Civil War. She was involved in the suffrage movement. And as I came back from my run, after being near assaulted by, a, by someone on the street, I thought about her and how she looked up. She kept looking up. No matter what they did to her, she never stopped looking up. And that star, it was a harbinger of hope. Today, you're my star. You are my harbinger of hope. This country is getting better and better and better. And when that final vote happens and you ascend onto the, onto the highest court in the land, I'm gonna rejoice. And I'm gonna tell you right now, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, will be better because of you. Thank you. Reactions. I will tell you that when I, this is one of those, moments i heard his entire talk to her and i do not cry and i teared up when i heard her i teared up because i agreed with him and because i i and i on a side note i have to kind of share a little little side story with everybody if you will indulge me um i understood what he was saying about her being a harbinger of hope but i also know Constance Baker Motley's story. And uh, you, a lot of people don't realize who Constance Baker Motley was. So like Judge Bradley, I will encourage you to read about her, but she was here as a jurist in residence at, at IU. 
And my husband uh, was one of the deans at the law school. So I had the privilege of meeting her and I want to quote unquote say hanging out with Judge Judge Motley for for one semester off and on, and because her husband and my husband had the same last name, we started talking and we decided that we would call each other Cuz. And so I not only got to meet her and talk with her and pick up some knowledge and some inspiration from her, but you know I could say. Cuz, Judge, Judge Custis Baker Motley. But I understood exactly what Cory Booker, Senator Booker was saying because um, people want to see in places of authority and, and power uh, reflections of themselves. And I will say, quite frankly, you know, this has historically been a pretty predominantly, uh, the power and authority has, has been in white males for the major part. We've had, I think, 115 uh, Supreme Court justices, five have been women, two have been black, and uh, to have a black woman who reflects a big part of the country and our population, uh, unrepresented thus far has been a shame. And I, I think it's exciting for people to, to see someone, uh, especially of Judge Jackson's caliber, who is going to ascend to like such a position and be able to uh, have such a say in, in our lives. A lot of people don't realize how the day to, our day-to-day -day lives are, are impacted by decisions by the Supreme Court, but they are. And I, I think it's exciting. I, I know that I don't know about Judge Bradley, but I have had people talk to me, even even the defendant after I've sentenced him or her to some, I, I remember specifically, to a fairly lengthy term in, in prison. And I was thanked because the particular defendant I'm thinking about said, it was just good to see you up on that bench, Judge. And I respect that. And that that's how I feel about seeing her ascend to, to the Supreme Court. So I was with him all the way. <laughs> yeah, Judge, would, Judge Bradley, uh, an observation from you, sir. And I would, I would echo what Judge Houghton was talking about because what Senator Booker was really getting us down to is what the impact of that nomination means to um, different segments of the population. And I was joking with Judge Houghton. I mean, for, um, I'm not in a position to, to speak, be mansplaining. If I'm talking about what a, <laughs> a, a black female jur jurist, attorney, law student feel, feels when they see her on the stage. But um, it's, for myself, there's, there's so many different aspects of where it, it just, touches you you know you think about for as a parent uh, because I've got a daughter I've got a son and to have someone who looks like them that's that representation that I don't know if all of us when we were growing up if you remember they used to have those plastic um oh little uh covers for your meals you know put them on the table little uh coverlets to have all the presidents and you look at all the presidents and up until Obama 
they were all white, powdered wig, looked the same. And you're probably thinking, that's not me. I can't be that because I don't look like that. And, you know, the visual representation means so much of different people in different ways. I mean, you have, I mean, it's like watching Hamilton and watching Philippa Sue, you know, you have people who of Asian descent are just excited to see her when you're watching Kanto. You have people just like, there's people that look like me, um, you know, I, I like sports, watching Doug Williams when he wins the Super Bowl, you're just like, there's a black quarterback um, that you didn't see. And I, I think for a lot of folks, it was, and for me, it's, it's what this person represents and where they come from a lot of different areas. I think Eric kind of touched upon this earlier was her being a former public defender. Uh, federal public defender, it's an experience that um, a lot of the other justices do not have. Um, it doesn't demean any of their backgrounds, just she's coming from a different angle. It's no different than when you brought in, when Judge Thurgood Marshall first got on the bench and you, you know, you read, I've read a, a story about Sandra Day O'Connor, where she talked about when they were in conference and he talked about his experiences mm-hmm. and he tells them things that they never experienced or never understood. And I think there's folks out there who's like, because she's a former public defender, that she is going to identify or understand um, some aspects that maybe other folks will not quite grasp, understand at the same level. And, and it's just, she brings in so many different impacts for, I think, for different folks. And, you know, and the other part about watching this is, um, I think about her family that's sitting there because probably the biggest struggle, and you know, you watched it, and I know in all these clips, we see her mom and her dad back there, and we'll see her husband and her kids. The number of hours they just sit there and have to have folks talk about a member of their family that probably in their heads, I'm gonna assume, and I would have the same as a parent, they're talking about my kid, and we've got five decades of knowledge about her and what she, the, what sacrifices she made, the work she's done to get the well-qualified. Um, again, I'll, I'll pivot back to this ABA report. They did a, you know, when they solicit information about her, it's anonymous. They asked um, attorneys who have practiced in front of her, um, people who've worked with her, people who've won cases, who lost cases, all these things about her like, Tell us what you think about her straight up. And you have to read this. It's effusing with praise. And people, prosecutors are like, when they get the draw, they're happy to have her because they know she's going to be fair, that they're gonna, you know, it's a, it doesn't matter how she's gonna rule, it's just like everybody feels like they're gonna be treated, um, you know, appropriately, respectfully. And you, you'll see just a lot of um, words about her in this report that just really, unfortunately, these um, committee meetings don't necessarily can capture of, of what, what a person she is. I, I always wondered that when you look at her family and they sit there very quietly, very politely, and her, her parents have gone through their own struggles to get to where they are in life. And then they have a daughter who's done amazing things. And I don't know if everybody really knows her as well as they do, as well as her husband does, as well as her kids do, of how amazing this woman is. We read her on paper. We watch her on videos. And we're just like, wow. And I think that's another you know, unfortunate in any type of hearings is you don't really get to have the parents you know, gush upon their kids uh, <laughs> for like several minutes to tell you, let me tell you why you should hire her uh, for this position. And I, I think that's one of the other things that, um, you know, I'm always impressed because they, they don't, they just sit through a lot of things that, you know, they, they're not sure if everybody's really seeing their daughter 
as the sensational jurist, sensational attorney, she clearly is. But Judge you know, Bradley, could I jump in on you and, and say that one thing that they did see was her sitting there so patiently and so poised as people were saying things to her that most people don't get exposed to or directed at them in polite company, quite frankly. And on a stay, a national stage in front of millions of people, what we did get to learn about her was that if anybody has that temperament, it's her because she sat patiently, quietly, listened, said, thank you, Senator. Thank you for allowing me to clarify, Senator. And I think that was something that came through no matter what she was being asked. Oh, definitely. I, I, I think watching that is, and I think it just reinforces what you see in all these reports about her is, you know, one of the things they ask, and Judge Hall and I will, can tell you about this, is like the concern everyone always has when you put someone on the bench is what is their temperament? What is their demeanor? They're concerned about us because um, I know for myself, and probably I've been a prosecutor, so as Judge Hall, and she's been a public defender as well as other things. She's got a huge check record all over um, experiences. And you know, when we're in the courtroom and we've on both sides of the bench, people are short with us. People are polite to us. People are rude. People curse. People get upset. Some people are having their worst day, not because of what's happening in court, because of something else. And the expectation is this is sometimes people's only first exposure in the, the court system. And it's important for everybody to be listened to, to be heard, to be treated fairly. And, you know, that's really important. And you see that coming out of, with her in these, these hearings is, um, gosh, you, you think if we're all in like at home, we'd probably be, you know, want to say something or, or get mad at a person. And she gets, uh, she doesn't get to finish sometimes what she wants to point, she wants to make or give you details. And yet you don't see a lot of wavering in her. Um, you don't know sometimes if you hear her, you don't know if the clip was good or bad beforehand because she's pretty steady as to how she's responding to people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just, um, you know, I think one of the things that I know you we've all been talking about is the impact of the nomination. It, it touches so many people in this country in a lot of different ways, and and she's just an outstanding jurist. Um, and, and I think, and I, and I think that's really borne out in all of the um, materials that um, you can find on all these the, mm -hmm. the Senate Judiciary website, and the ABA, and the like of her her vast background. Uh, Eric, why don't you chime in? Yeah. Um... I, I mentioned before just how uh, poised she was. All of us mentioned that. Um, uh, and Judge uh, Houghton said that she's not a crier. I'm a crier. And <laughs> hearing that speech really moved me. I, I got a little misty. Um, I'm proud of it. I, I don't mind it all, all that. That was a real beautiful statement in a, for him to give her in the middle of that experience. But it's also a poignant moment of, uh, of history and educating people who don't know the challenges that, that some have gone through. Um, something that it doesn't surprise me, but Democrats are trying to depoliticize <laughs> the, the Supreme Court by not having like an overly, you know, political, you know, left-wing judge, but someone who is, you know, temperate and, uh, you know, follows the rule of the law. And, uh, but you can see that the Republicans are making it extremely politicized, um, bringing in critical race theory, ask like, 
Like, what does that have to do? I have been a diversity educator for 30 plus years and I've never used critical race theory. It's, it's not used in day-to-day, -day, it's not used in high schools, it's not used in K through 12, it's not used to undergrads, it's a, a theory that's used for grad students and some law students. She's never subscribed to, you know, critical race theory or hadn't used it, but it's just, uh, just a way to try to politicize. I, I even think that um, bringing up the child molestation leads to the, you know, QAnon theories that the Democratic Party ran a child molestation ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. All of it, it sounds ridiculous, but they believe stuff like that. And I, I also, I'm, I'm liberal, politically, I'm very liberal, I'm socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. And I love when our country works because we can um, compromise and work together on things, but we are so um, politicized and so polarized at the moment. Um, and I, I think that just was another il illustration of someone who's an excellent candidate, has everything we need um, and brings something to the table we've never had. And then they diminish this, um, her hearing to things about child pornography and critical race theory. And if I go you back know. on that, if I could jump in real quick, sorry. Sure. And, and, and that's why, and I, I know I, I keep sounding like I'm getting a, a residuals from this, but when we look at the ABA um, and the like, they break down her cases, how many were appealed, what the decisions were, what the reversal, they talk about how her writings and they analyze her opinions. There's a writing group from Stanford, University of Illinois, um, that look that comb through everything she's issued and they break it down for you as to like what kind of quality of a jurist she is. And so, you know, just how to not stay out of all of the political um, aspects of, of things, um, but just, just boring down to what we're looking for from a jurist perspective. I think that's why I encourage people to look at some of these committee um, reports is it, it breaks things down for you and, and makes you understand really the breadth of her work because it's, it's really not captured this whole week as to exactly what she's done and how it's looked at um, Monday morning quarterbacking uh, from other folks as to um, just how fair, balanced um, her and how reasoned her approach is. And I think that's all that anybody wants, you know, from a jurist. I mean, if people go in front of a judge, they want somebody, they don't care what political party they are, as long as they're being treated fairly. And that jurist is listening to both sides of an argument, because that's the only reason people end up in court, quite frankly, is because there are, there are conflicts, and the jurist is there to help resolve the conflict. And if that person is listening to both sides, and comes to a fair and just conclusion, even if you're on the losing side, quote unquote losing side, if you could say to yourself, I was treated fairly, that's about all you can ask for. You know, right. and, and I think that that's what we will get with her. Also, I would like to say that I think she is right now the only, um, well, potential Supreme Court justice that has been a trial attorney. I don't think any of the others have been at this point. I know that judge, I mean, there have been in the past, but I mean, in the current composition of, of, the, of the Supreme mm -hmm. Court. 
I think Justice Sotomayor, wasn't she a prosecutor? I just can't think of where that is true. specifically true. on the East Coast. But yeah. no, and, and I think the other one too is, and I know Eric had kind of asked this about Info, uh, Congressional Research uh, Service. They have a nice little chart in one of their, um, about the Supreme Court appointments. And they tell you where everyone's professional experience was mm-hmm. at the time of nomination. And mm-hmm. you can kind of dig into uh, everyone's background. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so she, she, as Judge Hall was saying, she has a, that unique background um, right. because some of her experiences are um, other folks have yet to have on the bench or haven't had in like hundreds of years. Well, if, <laughs> if, if I could, uh, well, it's, it's interesting you say that because of the 115 uh, Judge Houghton that you cited, right. there, were, there were a number of um, Supreme Court justices who didn't finish law school. Right. And because now we jump back in the day, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to. And they're not their confirmation hearing was it was just a foregone conclusion. We didn't have the sideshow or the circuses, which then leads me to this. OK. And, and we have to kind of talk about this. Eric brought it up. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh. His confirmation hearing. Um, was a circus in some ways because he was trying to um, hide some revelations and talk around some revelations. And they even brought witnesses in to talk about some of these revelations. And I, I remember the passionate speech that Cory Booker gave, even during Judge Kavanaugh's um, nomination. But then to go sort of full circle to, and I think this, and, and I know our two, uh, Judges cannot really talk about this, but Eric, I really think it's again the political gamesmanship. Well, you did it to Kavanaugh, we're going to do it to her. And, you know, she may get on that bench, but boy, she's going to have to. Now, you know, and, and I think a lot of that is, is what we see playing out right now. Mm-hmm. But Kavanaugh and Thomas uh, have really been muted because they have to carry, you know, something about being a judge, you got to look at yourself in the mirror. And I think Thomas has sort of muted himself over the years because of the, the high tech lynching he said he went through. But truth is true. And I'm not saying that what Anita Hill accused him of was the actual truth or not, but the brother's been muted. And then I look at Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh hasn't been as forceful and to a particular president's uh, dismay, uh, the two or the, the several Supreme Court justices that he appointed did not come to his defense when he was going through his woes. And so something about when you when you put that robe on and you sit at that bench and cases around our nation that cannot be decided in the lower courts that will have years of impact on Americans and you have to now handle this case with a pure heart, some of, them, some of them can't do it. They just can't do it. So we're, we're kind of at that point right now um, where time has gotten away. I've enjoyed this, and yet we have one more clip, very brief. And we've talked about what she's had to endure, but she kind of answers that question right now in her own words. And so we'll play this and we'll sort of wrap this up. Uh, here is uh, Judge Brown Jackson's message to young people, which someone entitled Persevere. I will tell them what uh, an anonymous person said to me once. I was walking through 
Harvard Yard my freshman year. As I mentioned, I went to uh, public school and I didn't know anything about Harvard until um, my debate coach took me there to enter a speech competition and I thought, this is a great university. It was basically one of the only ones I'd seen and I said, maybe I'll apply when I'm a senior. But I get there and whoa, <laughs> so different. I'm from Miami, Florida. Boston is very cold. Um, it was, um, it was rough. It was different from anything I'd known. There were lots of students there who were um, prep school kids like my husband, <laughs> um, who knew all about <laughs> knew all about Harvard, and, and that was not not me. And. I think the first semester I was really homesick. I was really questioning, um, do I belong here? Can I, can I make it in this environment? And I was walking through the yard in the evening and a black woman I did not know was passing me on the sidewalk. And she looked at me and I guess she knew how I was feeling. And she leaned over as we crossed and said, persevere. I would tell them to persevere. Well, we have about uh, just a few minutes left, but I'd like to get a 30-second observation uh, from, from both of our honored guests. And I'll start with uh, Judge Houghton. Um, I hope she does persevere. She has so far. She has been an inspiration to me and an inspiration to encourage other others that are coming after me to uh, kind of encourage them to do the same thing. I try my best whenever there are law students that wish to um, observe or, or get some information, especially quite frankly, uh, law students of color and women law students of color. Uh, and, and I, I want to be that kind of inspiration to them. She is younger than I am, Judge Jackson, but uh, she is an inspiration to me. And I will continue to aspire to be uh, a better jurist, I think in part because of her. And, and I, I wish her uh, the best as a Supreme Court justice. Thank you, and uh, Judge Bradley. When I when I heard that that message, that had a whole bunch of different thoughts that run through your head. But the thing it gets down to, I think, that she says, and we should all say, is someone believed in you and encouraged you, and you know those are the shoulders you stand on. And when you're in a situation to where you don't know if you can go forward or go on, look back to those folks because you know they they want you to succeed. Exactly. They want you to persevere. They want you to keep going. Um, and I think for all of us here and, and probably everybody listening, there's, you know, when you're a student, there's somebody in your family, um, somebody that you came across, somebody that you got to work with who just encouraged you. And then that's your, you know, that's um, Judge Hall and I, we have that responsibility going forward is we try to help others because other, we were helped. Um, and, exactly. and I think, and I think she's really wants us to, you know, we all should think about that and, and remember that 
And as she's going through, she, again, she is, as I've read about her, she's just so amazing and so well thought of nationally. Um, and if she becomes a Supreme Court justice, you know, it's, it's an honor for her, but it's an, you know, I'm, again, you'll be proud, I'm proud um, as she's going through this journey um, of who she is and what she will bring to the bench. So thank you again for having us. Well, with that, with that, and we just want to give our thanks to both of you, the Honorable Valerie Houghton, Circuit Court Judge Division Two, and the Honorable Jeff Jeffrey Bradley, Monroe County Circuit Court Division One. Um, and I hope I didn't slaughter that. I think we talked about it on the front end, but nevertheless, <laughs> if I could appoint you two to the Supreme Court, I'd do it. So anyway, thank you for joining us to discuss the nomination of the Honorable Katanji Brown Jackson to the United States Supreme Court. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond, even up in South Bend. Uh, the email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. And uh, Eric Hales from the South Bend area, but many of our listeners may remember his voice on the airwaves with Bring It On. And thanks for being such a wonderful contributor this evening, my friend. Uh, Bring It On's, exec Bring it on's executive you. producer is yours truly, Clarence Spoon. Assistant producer is William Hosea. Show consultant and WFHB News Department Directors, Kate Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. And our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I've been Eric Love, so <laughs> <laughs> I'll still be Eric Love tomorrow. <laughs> so be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. Maybe Eric will be back next week for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. <laughs>